Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Hello, and happy whatever day it is for you. This episode is coming out a little late, sorry about that, but this week has been insanely crazy. I finished a pretty big project with my summer internship, which was pretty stressful this past week, but it was nice to get it over with and it went well. So that was nice to get that feedback and just to knock that off my checklist. In terms of stuff I've seen in the news recently, I've seen a lot of stuff coming out from the January 6th committee just today, and yesterday saw some news about Josh Hawley, like, running from the Capitol after he was supposedly heroically posing and saying, yes, this is what things look like, and then he ran away, basically being a big hypocrite. I've also seen things come out about the Secret Service and some text messages, not 100% sure on all that stuff, but if you're not tuning in to the January 6th committee, pretty interesting because whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, January 6th was a huge political moment in American history, and it is in my opinion, not something to be diminished, because essentially we saw a civil uprising to challenge the legitimate election of a different leader and almost had a unpeaceful uh, switching of power. So very interesting, very historically important, and not something to be swept under the rug. This episode came as a suggestion from someone who left a five-star review, so first of all, if you like these episodes, this show, and you haven't left a five-star review, please do, but to the person who left the review suggesting this scandal, thank you very much. I had not heard of it. Being from the United States, this is a scandal coming out of the UK, and it is just fascinating. So the sources I used for this episode... I used an article from The Guardian titled U.S. Blood Was Too Freely Imported to the U.K. in the 70s and 80s, an article from Factor 8 titled Contaminated Blood Scandal, another article from Factor 8 titled Contaminated Blood Scandal Death Toll, an article from the Red Cross Blood Services website from... 2022, a page from the Mayo Clinic Foundation, and another article from The Guardian, two of them actually, um, one from 2021, one from 2022 by H. Sadiq, and then an article from the Hemophilia Society titled The Contaminated Blood Scandal. Those are the sources I used. This episode is regarding the Factor Eight Contaminated Blood Scandal. And again, this is happening, or this, I guess, is still happening, but it happened in the UK. But first, before we dive into the scandal, we need to get some background as to what hemophilia is. So let's talk about it. Hemophilia is a blood disorder where the blood doesn't clot in a normal way. So normally, if you cut or scrape yourself and you bleed, the bleeding will eventually stop because the blood will clot and form a scab. If you have hemophilia, 
it isn't the case. The blood, it doesn't have enough blood clotting proteins called clotting factors, so this could result in bleeding longer after injuries compared to someone who does not have hemophilia. Obviously, if your blood can't clot and you bleed more, this is an obvious problem because, to quote one of the best lines from the office, your body only has a certain amount of blood. If you lose too much, bye bye Even though blood not being able to clot or clotting less easily is an issue, it's not something that is going to be life or death for every little scrape or cut. Little scrapes and cuts aren't too much of the problem and aren't really the main concern when it comes to hemophilia. A big problem for people who have severe hemophilia is bleeding inside of the body, more specifically in the knees, the ankles, and the elbows. This internal bleeding, it can damage organs, tissues, and that can be life-threatening. Hemophilia is almost always a genetic disorder, so normally you inherit it from your parents and it's just passed down that way. To further break down hemophilia a little bit more and try not to dive too far into the scientific specifics, there are different clotting factors inside the blood, such as clotting factor 8 and clotting factor 9. The most common type of, of hemophilia, which is called hemophilia A, is associated with a low level of factor 8. The second most common type of hemophilia is known as hemophilia B, and that is associated with a low level of factor 9. So when we say the factor 8 contamination blood scandal, the factor 8 is relating to the factors, the clotting factors in the blood or in the case of hemophilia, the low level of those clotting factors. Unfortunately, there is no cure at this time for hemophilia, but there are treatments to help mitigate the impacts of hemophilia. The main treatment involves a tube that is put into a vein that replaces the clotting factor that is low. There are other types of therapies and medications, but the main thing to know is that there is no cure. However, there are treatments that can help mitigate the symptoms and impacts of hemophilia. Now that that background has been established, we know what hemophilia is and what factor 8 and factor 9 are, let's dive into this scandal. A common treatment for hemophilia, and one that was also common back in the 1970s, is called cryoprecipitate, which is more commonly known as cryo, and thank goodness there's a shorter term for it because I don't want to try to pronounce that again. Cryo, quote, is a portion of plasma, the, the liquid part of our blood. Cryo is rich in clotting factors, which are proteins that can reduce blood loss by helping to slow or stop bleeding, end quote. One of the blood clotting proteins found in cryo includes factor 8, which, as you will remember, is the low-level factor in hemophilia A, the most common type of hemophilia. This treatment, at least back then, when the scandal happened, which was in the 70s and 80s, and I'm not sure specifically how it's done now, it was pretty safe at the time as each unit was made up of the blood plasma from only one donor. 
Since this unit was made up of the blood plasma from only one donor, in theory it would have been possible to be able to know everything that the donor could have had, such as hepatitis, HIV, or any other viruses or things that can be transmitted via blood. The testing requirements weren't as strict or as stringent back then, but in theory, it just makes sense. It's safer to pull only from one person because it's one person. You can ask them to fill out a questionnaire. You can test that one person's blood and you will know what that one person's blood has if it has anything at all. So in the 70s, when this scandal started to take place, a new treatment emerged. This treatment was called factor concentrates. This treatment was less sure and way, way more dangerous than cryo. So cryo, made up of one person's blood, one plasma, in theory, very safe. With this new factor concentrate treatment, it was way less safe, and this is because the factor concentrate was created by mixing together plasma donations from tens of thousands of people. Yes, I will say it again, from tens of thousands of people. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, since this concentrate was going to be mixed with other people's blood and plasma, you would think that it was going to be tested, or the individuals who were going to donate would be tested for various viruses, things like that, right? No. In fact, it was pretty far the opposite way. There were some donors from the United States and elsewhere who were paid for their their donations, and some of these individuals who donated and were paid to donate fell into high-risk groups for viral risks, quote, which included prisoners, prostitutes, IV drug users, homosexuals, and others, end quote. Depending on the source that you look at, this concentrate was made up of plasma from between 40,000 to 60,000 individuals. So 40,000 to 60,000 people's blood plasma was gathered up, people were paid to donate, but these people were not tested, their blood was not tested, and a lot of these people came from high-risk groups of viral transmissions of diseases through blood, such as prisoners, sex workers, homosexuals, drug users. Who thought this was a good idea? To compare the cryo treatment to this other treatment, the risk of hepatitis exposure from a single blood unit from cryo was about 0.1%. And while there's always a risk In anything that you do, a 0.1% risk of contamination is pretty decent. If I were to be told I needed to have a medical procedure and it was going to 99.9% be effective or go fine with no side effects, but there was a 0.1% chance of getting something or for it to go wrong, I would definitely take those odds. 99.9% chance of a perfect, perfectly healthy treatment those are some good odds. Now, if we compare it to the factor concentrate where it was mixed together with tens of thousands of people, the hepatitis exposure rate was 100%. There was literally a 100% chance 
of hepatitis exposure with this factor concentrate blood plasma mixing disaster. Would you accept a surgery or a medical procedure that said, you know what, there's a 100% chance that this is going to go absolutely terribly for you? Would you still like it? No, of course you wouldn't. So you may be asking yourself, why would anyone get this blood? Well, guess what? People weren't told. Before we get into that, I'm going to talk a little bit more about some background about how this blood came to be. Why was all of this blood taken from all of these random people, but especially these groups that had a high risk of potentially having something? And it's because there was a commitment that was made that was not honored. So back in 1975, David Owen, who was the former United Kingdom health minister, had committed to becoming factor eight reliant. So they were basically like, hey homies, we as this health ministry are going to become totally reliant. We're going to supply our own factor eight stuff. We're going to be super cool, but they didn't. It wasn't the case. And so because they weren't self-reliant, they had to import this factor eight supply, this blood from overseas because this commitment was not honored. So right off the bat, not following through with this commitment that has been made, but on top of that, decision makers did not seem worried about the many warning signs regarding the uses of this product. Some of the decision makers that didn't seem to care about the warning signs were leading clinicians and government leaders. Another group that ignored the risks were pharmaceutical companies, which, as you can guess, was for money, but here's where we go into a big problem. Not only is being greedy one thing, but these risks that clinicians, government officials, pharmaceutical companies knew about, they were not shared with patients and patient groups. You know, the people who are actually going to get the treatment or perhaps consider getting the treatment, these people whose lives were going to be changed forever were not told of any of these risks, even though government officials, leading clinicians, and pharmaceutical companies all knew about these risks. In 1982, there was some attention that started to come out highlighting the dangers of certain diseases, especially with the rise of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. In 1982, the first death of a man with hemophilia who was affected or infected with AIDS was reported in the United States. It was one of the first warning signs of how dangerous contracting AIDS was from contaminated blood products, and it was also the first warning that was actually published. So, the AIDS crisis, it was getting more and more attention, but now this, I can't remember if it was a journal or an article, but this thing was published that said this man who had hemophilia was infected with AIDS and was infected with AIDS because of a contaminated blood product. After this came out, other warnings started to emerge and come out that said that people who had hemophilia should be warned of the dangers, because remember, this blood treatment is used to help mitigate the symptoms and the side effects of hemophilia. Talking a little bit more specifically about how many people were actually impacted by this, 
there are different numbers depending on the different sources that you use. So I'm going to use two different sources in here to kind of give you different perspectives. But either way, it should not have happened. According to the Hemophilia Society, a total of 4,689 people who had hemophilia were infected with HIV and hepatitis. So over 4,600 people were unknowingly affected with a viral disease that changed their lives forever. But on top of that, some of these people infected their partners because they themselves did not know that they were effect infected with these viruses. They went to the hospital, the clinic, wherever they went for this blood treatment, got the treatment, expecting to have their symptoms of hemophilia mitigated, but instead they were infected with HIV or hepatitis or both, and then unknowingly infected their partners as well. Since these infections took place back in the 80s and kind of going forward, more than 3,000 people have died, and of those, 1,243 were people who were infected with HIV, and less than 250 of people who were infected with HIV are alive today. I just... I struggle to come up with words of how absolutely frustrating and heartbreaking this is because people who had hemophilia were already dealing with a difficult blood disorder to where it could cause them internal injuries. If they got an external injury, it could potentially be life-threatening. They go to get this treatment and unknowingly are infected with something that was potentially going to kill them and especially back in the 80s where like now there are many medicines and treatments that can help mitigate HIV symptoms it can help delay it so you can live a long normal happy life if you turn up to have um, a positive test for HIV but back in the 80s an HIV to AIDS diagnosis was basically a death sentence and less than 250 people who were infected with HIV because of this scandal are alive today. Not only is it horrible that these this many amount of people were infected and have died because of HIV, hepatitis, and the contaminated blood, but at the time of their diagnosis, their existence was completely changed. There was, on top of essentially HIV and AIDS being a death sentence, there was the large, large, and still is today, stigma around HIV, large homophobia. It meant a, a lot of different things than what it means now. And then at the same time, because all of this was going on, there was then a large assumption that anyone who had hemophilia was infected with AIDS. So now, people who had hemophilia, which again is primarily a genetic Thing that is passed down, anyone who had hemophilia, even if they weren't infected with HIV, was now being treated like they had HIV and they were facing discrimination, which, first of all, no one should face discrimination, especially because of a positive HIV status. Obviously, back then, it was presented in a way that was 
oh, only gay people have HIV. There was a large homophobia aspect. There still is today, but it's more understood to be not a gay thing. But these people who had hemophilia are now facing discrimination for everyone assuming they have HIV, which they don't. People are incorrectly assuming that they have it. They're being discriminated against. And so people who were infected with HIV or hepatitis are facing discrimination. They're facing shame. They're facing stereotypes. People who have hemophilia that aren't affected with HIV or hepatitis and don't get anything from this blood scandal are still facing discrimination because of the whole stigma around AIDS, the whole homophobia around HIV, this whole blood scandal. So it not only medically impacted people, but it also just increased stereotypes and discrimination for people who were already struggling with a genetic disorder. If people were diagnosed with HIV, they were often told by their, do by their doctors not to tell anyone and to basically keep it a secret. So because of this stigma, the discrimination, many people kept this a secret, they kept it to themselves because if they told people they were going to face discrimination and harassment from a variety of ways and a variety of directions that people did not deserve and do not deserve. What has been done for these people who were impacted? Surely there must have been a settlement, there must have been an investigation, something along those lines. In short, no, not really. Not much has really been done in the way of helping people who were impacted by this blood scandal. In 1989, the United Kingdom's government announced ex gratia payments to people who had been infected with HIV through the infected blood products. And we kind of talked about an ex gratia payment in, I think, the British Museum episode way back at the beginning. But this type of payment is basically a moral payment that does not admit fault. So in this case, the government made payments and did not admit liability. Oh, we feel so bad for your situation that you were infected with HIV. It's such a shame that you were impacted. So here's some money. But also, by the way, we're not admitting any liability to this. It's not our faults, but here's some money because we feel bad for you. That's what happened in 1989. In 2004, there was a fund created to make payments to people who had been infected with hepatitis, which is good. But up until this point, 2004, no investigations had taken place. And despite how big this scandal was, how many people it impacted, an investigation into why and how this happened was denied for decades until finally in 2017, just five years ago, Theresa May announced that an inquiry would finally take place. Let's talk a little more about the government's role in all of this because during this inquiry, evidence has come out that is pretty damning regarding what the government knew. In 1983, the United Kingdom government denied that there were dangers posed by Factor VIII and this blood treatment. For example, the then health minister, Ken Clark, said in November of 1983 that, quote, there is no conclusive evidence that AIDS is transmitted by blood products, end quote. However, in May of 1983, Hugh Rossi, 
Then, a minister at the Department of Health and Social Security told a constituent in a letter, quote, It is an extremely worrying situation, particularly as I read in the weekend press that the disease is now being transmitted by blood plasma which has been imported from the United States, end quote. Even though this health minister read about it being transmitted by or through blood plasma, it would be another two years until HIV screenings for all blood donations would start to take place in the UK. So here we have a minister saying one thing publicly, that there's no conclusive evidence that this is happening, but here, months before that statement took place, we have another health minister saying that, Oh, it is so scary how HIV is being transmitted through blood plasma. It is so frightening that we know this and that we can see this, but months later, this health minister is like, Ugh, there's no evidence of this. Why are you worrying about it? This May letter saying that this health minister knew about this was pretty damaging for the government, which is probably why the government sought to prevent its release back in 1990 in illegal action because of this blood scandal. These documents and more have come out because of this inquiry, and a person who gave evidence at the inquiry said, quote, these documents show the government did know AIDS was transmitted through Factor Eight long before they admitted it and years before they did anything about it. This letter proves once and for all that ministers were well aware of the dangers. End quote. A shocking number that has come from the inquiry has stated that 30,000 people became severely ill after being treated with contaminated blood products. Some good news that has started to come out from this inquiry, but it's basically too late, is that there is likely to be compensation for people who suffered because of this scandal. And again, I repeat the phrase, likely to be compensation. This compensation is estimated to cost billions of pounds because a government report suggested, quote, thousands of people should receive minimum payments of $100,000 each, end quote. Which, in my opinion, it should be way more, but it's good at least that it's being talked about that people are going to get paid maybe $100,000. That's a decent amount of change. There are officials who are saying that this payment should go out soon, and part of this is because people who were impacted, who were infected through this contaminated blood, they're going to want this money before they pass away because one, this happened back in the 80s, so 40 years ago. 40 years ago is a decent amount of time, and let's say you were in your 40s back in the 80s, you're going to be in your 80s now, assuming you're still alive. So if you were impacted by this, you have had 40 years pass on top of if you were infected with anything, that's going to be a detriment to your health as well. Even though it's good that there will likely be financial compensation because of this scandal, the Factor 8 campaign said about the inquiry and report that, quote, What's important now is that we have time to fully read and consider it. As of yet, there is no commitment from the government that compensation will happen, and it's important for all of those impacted to understand it. I believe it would bring some sense of security if the government were to make such a commitment before the inquiry reports next year. 
end quote. That quote and then the information about the possible payments is as is as current as of June 2022, so just about a month ago. And they're saying something important, that these payments are not guaranteed. It's not like they're going out now, but it's just saying, yeah, we should probably pay these people, and this is probably the amount we'll pay them, but it's not a commitment to pay them, and it's not a payment to them that is going out to their bank accounts. To end off this scandal, I'm going to read some reported statistics about deaths and infections. And again, these numbers vary source by source, but these numbers are according to the Factor 8 scandal and they cite some government data, so it seems to be pretty legit. And Factor 8 is an independent nonprofit organization. So according to Factor 8, this nonprofit organization, 1,243 people were infected with HIV, and the known death toll from HIV is 844 people. 2,648 people were infected with hepatitis C, and the known death toll from hepatitis C is 402. The total impacted spouses and partners who were infected is known to be 71, and the known death toll of spouses and partners who were infected is known to be 31. Of course, these numbers could change and could increase after the report is finalized, but those numbers are current as of now, end of July 2022, from the Factor 8 nonprofit group. And there will be more updates as this continues, but as of now, there is no commitment to make payments to these people that were impacted. There are no payments that are going out to these people. And as unsatisfying of an ending as that is, that concludes, as of now, the Factor 8 contaminated blood scandal. This is just so frustrating because it was a group of people who were seeking a medical treatment, and a medical treatment that I'm sure was promised to be helpful, was promised to be effective, and these were people who, through no fault of their own, through primarily a genetic inheritance of this condition where blood cannot clot, was seeking treatment. And they were unknowingly infected with a life-altering disease at a time when there was so much stigma, discrimination, and just essentially hate around HIV, and then also hepatitis C. So many people have died, so many people's lives have been impacted because of this, and it is still ongoing. And it just, it just sucks that this happened, it sucks that there's not a resolution to it yet, and it, it just sucks all around. So on that negative bummer note, thank you so much for listening. Of course, this show is not a happy cheery show, because usually scandals are not. I'm going to post photos related to the scandal on social media. If you want to keep up with the latest, follow there on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, search Scandal101Podcast, you'll find the page there. The website is Scandal101Podcast.podbean.com, you'll find the show notes there, you'll also find the show notes linked in the description of the episode. And then the email, if you want to send your personal scandal or if you want to send an episode suggestion idea, that email is scandal101podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode interesting and I hope you learned something. And with that, this has been episode 61 of Scandal 101.